going to jump right in with the facts about Christian unity. Uh, the first fact about Christian unity is the ideal, very clear, what God's ideal is for us, what what the vision of Jesus Christ is for us. The Lord's dream is for his people to experience unity together in both peace and purpose, right? So we're pulled together. We're working together. Like I've seen all these VBS people doing this week all over the place, working together, pulling on the same rope. It's our purpose. And also we experience this peace of Christ. That is his vision for us. Um, He says in John 17, 23, in a prayer, Jesus prays, may they, that's us, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and you love them as much as you love me. A lot to think about there. That you love them as much as you love me. Wow. That we would experience such perfect unity. The world just looks at us and says, there is a God, and I want to be a part of what he is up to because I see him at work in his church. Perfect unity. That is the ideal. That is the center of the bullseye. Then we've got the real, the reality of the issue. Since much of the New Testament deals with not the ideal, but the real Places where this ideal is being played out, places like Corinth and Rome and Philippi, real places, real broken people, then we would expect to find that we're, we're not always hitting the center of the bullseye. Okay? Um, that there are some imperfections in this unity, and sure enough, that's exactly what we find. We find throughout the New Testament some gaps in this ideal, in this perfect unity. We find examples of people simply not getting along. Christians simply not getting along. Even some giants of the faith, Peter and Paul, not always getting along. Barnabas, John Mark, Paul, not always getting along. Things get bumpy in the real, in the real world when we are doing life together. So the real is this. The Lord Sherp's made up people like us. A mosaic of people, different backgrounds, Races, personalities, preferences, different concerns. We care about different things in different magnitudes. And so Paul, writing to this church in Corinth, in the middle of this letter, he says in chapter 11, verse 18, I hear that as you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Paul says, word on the street, Corinth, is that you guys are not getting along, and he says, I kind of I kind of believe that, <laughs> okay? Um, so, the story is told that once upon a time, this man um, was shipwrecked and living alone on a deserted island for a long, long time, and one fine day, a, a, a big transit Atlantic liner was passing by, spotted the man on the beach there, and sent a small watercraft to rescue the man on the beach and when the crew of that boat got to the shore they noticed three huts along the shoreline three little huts and so they asked the man since there's only one of you why are there three huts and the man said well one of those is my home the second one is my church and then that other one is the church I used to go to 
I mean, we get it. We get it. If you have ever worshipped in a congregation with more than one person, okay, with more than just yourself, then you have worshipped with people who don't agree with you on everything. That's the way it is. So we've got this ideal, and then we've got the reality of doing life together with a diverse body of believers. Now we got the deal. Now we got how God is going to work all of this out. The Lord's dream for unity can only happen through the Spirit and our hard work. I've got to be honest with you. It's not entirely up to God. Okay? Our salvation is up to God. Our unity, not entirely up to God, but a big part of it is. It is the Spirit, and it is you and I cooperating with the Spirit. We can surrender, we can yield, we can cooperate with the Spirit, or not. Okay? Uh, and so Paul says to the Ephesian church, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Let's leave that one up. Let's read this one together, if you would. This is for us. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Paul says, hey, Ephesians, it's going to take work. It's going to take some sweat equity. Everybody working together because unity is not easy. Now, the Spirit grants us the unity. We are called not to blow it, not to ruin it. We're to work together to keep that unity. I think we have a video we're going to show that kind of illustrates this. Harmony. Those rare moments of complete unity. When everything works together. Everyone clicks. All the pieces fit. Selfishness is put aside. Egos and agendas fade away. And everyone is in sync. Totally committed to the team. Totally focused on making those around them better. It's efficient. Complete. Beautiful. But it rarely lasts. Selfishness rears its head. It breaks up bands. Destroys teams. Tears apart friendships. In a universe bent towards entropy and decay where friction and conflict are unavoidable and self-interest rules. These moments of unity never seem to last, except in one instance of constant and infinite harmony. Love so perfect and complete, it defies description 
and sets the standard for how we should treat one another. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Ever three and ever one. And that's really where the scriptures point. They point to the unity that God enjoys, and that is the source of our unity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's a perfect fellowship there. A harmony like nothing else in all the universe. And this has everything to do with us here in the real world because while we certainly have our differences, the fellowship that we enjoy in the body of Christ has been hewn out of something greater than our differences and our personalities and our preferences. Our fellowship has been hewn out of God himself. Jesus the night before his crucifixion, prays this for us. John 17, 22, that they, he says, Father, that they may be one as we are one. So we're not on our own. (laughs) And that's good news, right? I mean, not at all. We have a role to play, yes. As Paul said, we're supposed to, Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort. But... At the same time, the Spirit is very much involved in all of this. Now, clearly, there are things that we can do that can sabotage our unity in the Spirit. There are also things that we can do that deepen it and that strengthen it. One thing I want you to know here at this church, at Preston Crest, is we are a church 100% committed to keeping the unity of the Spirit. And that is one of the things that I so appreciate about the eldership that we have at this church. It is a group that from the beginning has steered us constantly toward fellowship and unity and togetherness. They have constantly moved us away from personal agendas, from divisive issues. Um, And so I would just ask you, before we move, I mean, I would just ask you this week and always to keep them and their important work in your prayers. Well, here's another church community, uh, Rome. First century Rome in Romans chapter 14, and it's going to bleed a little bit into Romans chapter 15. Paul is going to write to them because they were not experiencing, okay, they were not experiencing perfect unity. They were really missing the bullseye quite a bit in Rome. And this will help us to figure out how to take this ideal that's in the heart of Jesus Christ and move that into our world where we do have differences. Uh, Principally, in the letter that Paul writes to Rome, principally, he is going to tackle what for many congregations is the greatest challenge to unity. Issues. Issues. Issues that not everybody agrees on. So basically, Paul is going to tell us, I'll give you the the cheat sheet right here before we get into the text. Paul is basically going to tell us that most of the issues that we think are important and that we're willing to fight over, Paul is going to tell us they're really not that important. And they're certainly not worth fighting over. So, Romans chapter 14. 
And we'll read some selective passages because it's quite a big text. But read the whole thing at home because it's all about unity. The first thing Paul tells that church is use caution in how you define sin. Okay? There are some folks that want to define anything as a sin that is something they think is wrong. Paul says be very cautious with that because that is not a very unifying thing to do. He says in verse 1, first verse of the chapter, except other believers who are weak in faith don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. Just stay out of those discussions, out of those arguments. Um, Here's what he says again. Except other believers who are weak in faith, don't argue with them about what they think is right and wrong. So important here, remember who the judge is. Hint, not you. The judge is not you. Um, God is greater than me. God is greater than you. God is greater than my opinions on a wide assortment of disputable matters, of issues. And depending, see, these issues depend, right? Uh, Depending on where you live, depending on what century you live in, there will be diverse issues that will confront your church. Diverse issues about which good Christian folks will simply disagree. In first century Rome, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is going to mention three of their issues. And it's a whole lot easier to talk about other people's issues, so this is going to be helpful this morning. Um, Their issues revolved around food, principally meat, um, whether it was okay or not to eat meat. They centered around special religious days, whether or not those should be celebrated. And they, they also drinking wine. Those were three issues that Paul is going to tackle in Romans 14 that apparently were to some degree divisive in that congregation. So just so we know what's going on here, there were people in the church in Rome, first century, who thought that a Christian should not eat meat. Sin to eat meat. It's not that they were in favor of health, a healthy vegan lifestyle. It's not that they were great protectors of animal rights and and fighting against animal cruelty. It was a religious question. To these people, it was a sin question. You see, in Rome, the meat that was readily available for purchase... And certainly the very best meat that you could purchase in Rome had been previously sacrificed at one of the local pagan temples. Those animals had been victims, if you will, of local pagan rituals, and then they were sold as meat in Rome to the general public. That's where you went and you bought your steaks. Some of the Christians in Rome, let's remember, there's a diverse group. People came from different backgrounds. There were Jewish Christians, all right? There were pagan Christians. They had been, they had been converted out of various pagan religions. So these people in Rome, they had actually, in their previous lives, they had actually gone to these pagan temples and shrines and worshipped these false gods. And so they strongly identified meat 
with pagan rituals. They could not enjoy a good ribeye without thinking about all of those shrines and all of those priests and all of those rituals that had been associated with that, with that stake. Okay? So guess what? They felt strongly, very strongly, that Christians should not eat meat. It was a sin to eat meat. How could any real disciple of Jesus Christ be involved with eating meat in Rome when it had been associated with these pagan practices? Other Christians in that same exact congregation had no problems at all in purchasing the meat from these markets and serving it up at their family barbecues. So what if it came from these temples? So what if it had been used in worship services to these false gods? They're false gods. There's nothing to them. And the Temple of Zeus over there has the best ribeye in town. So you know that's where I'm buying my steaks. So in this church in Rome, they were having this kind of ancient food fight. They were fighting about meat, whether or not it was a sin to eat those meats. Okay? Issue one. Issue two. Religious days. The observance of holy days. Um, for some, there were these days, and let's imagine here mostly the Jewish members or the Jewish Christians who were members of that congregation, there were these special days, um, feast days, that were meant to be given special religious observance, special attention. Those days, for them, were to be treated differently. Okay, You shouldn't work you should clear your schedule. You should give special attention to the things of God on those days. You should, as a God worshiper, make that day holy to the Lord. And it was for those Jewish Christians, it was a sin to treat those special days like just ordinary days. Okay, Other Christians treated those special days just like any other days. After all, they didn't come out of this Jewish heritage. They didn't know what the, the festival of the tabernacles was all about. They didn't know what these different feasts and traditions were all about. It meant very little to them. It was just a Monday. It wasn't a special day. So in Rome, Christians would disagree strongly, strongly enough for Paul to address it in a letter. Um, they would disagree strongly about whether or not it was a sin to treat a holy day, a religious day, like any other day okay <clears throat> I guess we have a little bit of that I mean I grew up in a church fantastic church fantastic people but um, we did not do Christmas in the church I grew up in it was pretty much the one day you could be sure we were not talking about the birth of Jesus was on Christmas okay any other day it was okay because we didn't know for sure historically when Jesus was born so we and it was a pretty strong position now I think there were a lot of Christmas trees in people's homes. 
Uh, I think there were a lot of Christmas carols being played in their cars, on their car stereos. But officially, we didn't do Christmas. And maybe that's a little bit like what the Roman Christians were fighting about. Okay, uh, People really got worked up over this stuff. Then verse 21, he mentions wine. This is the one issue that Christians actually still argue about. Is it a sin to drink wine? Apparently in Rome, that was an issue back then, 2,000 years ago as well. Now, Paul's advice for us on this stuff is to, his first advice is to be very cautious, very judicious about taking your position on a certain topic and making that a public position where you are right and those who disagree are in sin. Issues that Christians have disagreed about more recently that probably would get us a little bit more worked up um, that we might today have stronger feelings about but the Christians in Rome might not care about at all. Um, the list is pretty long. I mean, Halloween... Um, Harry Potter, uh, <laughs> smoking, um, watching a rated R movie, dancing, um, wearing shorts to church, men wearing hats to church, um, church buildings, uh, raising money for church buildings, um, divorce, remarriage, uh, worship teams, all, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Lots and lots and lots of issues over which people um, during our lifetimes have had very strong differences in churches. Uh, in Brazil, we, learned, we went there to do mission work and planted church, and we learned very quickly that cards, like playing cards, were associated by most evangelicals with spiritism, with fortune-telling. Okay? That you didn't, Christians didn't play bridge and they didn't play spades, most of them in Brazil, because those playing cards were something that was the devil's work, right? Now, the point's not to laugh about that, trivialize that, say, come on, how naive is that? Um, the point is not that. Certainly, Paul doesn't make fun of anybody in Romans chapter 14. He respects each person's view, um, and, and part of that means... He says, be cautious. Part of the implication is be cautious about using your personal convictions about sin to legislate for other folks. Now, there are indisputable unity issues, clear, core, fundamental, bedrock issues upon which we are to all agree about Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead, about the gospel about the character of God, about morality for the people of God. And then there are exponentially more places where Christians disagree over lesser issues. Okay? So God's people, this is kind of the problem here, God's people have often leapt over the walls that God has erected and erected walls that God himself knocked down. And that creates divisions, not harmony in the body of Christ. So, one way to strengthen unity in the church, Paul says, is to be very careful about erring your personal views 
that draw lines in the sand. Be careful about that. The second thing he says is individual advice here. He says, follow your conscience. Follow your conscience. He says in verse 23, if you believe that anything is not right, if, sorry, if you do anything that you believe is not right, you are sinning. Okay? So it may be a sin for some person to play bridge. It may be. Because they're violating their conscience by playing bridge. It may be, you, you get the idea. Um, follow your conscience, Paul says. Romans 14 recognizes that we are individuals. Sure, there are clear biblical truths that bind us together, that we hold on to together, absolutely. But Paul says that what may be right for me may not be right for you. And taking that a step further, what may be wrong for me may not be wrong for you and vice versa. So Paul talks about the religious days issue. He talks about the meat issue. He mentions the wine issue. In discussing the issues, guess what? This is what's so interesting and so different from what of a lot of what I've seen in my lifetime of watching religious discussions, okay? What Paul never does as he talks about these three distinct issues, Paul never says who is right. He never gives us an answer. Is it right or is it wrong? Um, he never says the meat eaters are right. Or he never says the meat abstainers are right. He never says whether or not it is right or wrong to observe a special religious holiday. He never says who is right on the wine question. What he does say is that in these disputable matters, let your conscience be your guide. Here's the tone he takes to the whole passage, verse 5. He says, in the same way, some think that one day is more holy than another day, while others think that every day is alike. Who's right? Paul. He says, you should each be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. You're both right if you follow your conscience, Paul says. So there are these two camps in Rome. They are diametrically opposed to each other. They are disagreeing about, they're verbalizing their disagreements with each other. This is a religious issue to these people, okay? Um, it is one that people in Rome have strong opinions about. It's one that people disagree about. Paul says, as long as you are following your conscience and you keep your opinion to yourself, you are right. So how do we do this? This makes me squirm a little bit. I don't know about you. I mean, I've got things I feel strongly about. You know, issue X, Y, or Z. Um, how can I follow my conscience and at the same time feel good about the other person following their conscience in the exact same congregation when they don't agree with me? How does that work, Paul? It works by turning to someone greater than. 
It works by turning to someone greater than me, greater than you, turning to Jesus, the one who has brought us together. And he is greater than our differences. Paul writes, it's all about Jesus. Starting in verse 8, he says, If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live, whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? So next, if, we, if we're going to strengthen our unity, then there is a choice to be made. Okay. This is a key idea here in chapter 14. It is to channel your freedom with love. Channel, you have freedom. Channel your freedom. With, use your influence well. So let's stop verse 13. Let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Paul says this, it's not that hard to figure out, really. Um, listen, Paul isn't, isn't exactly legislating here what a believer should do. He is reminding believers that they don't live in isolation. The decisions they make affect others. They live in this community, in the church, in the body of Christ. So while they may have freedom to do something, um, they may choose because of their love for another person not to exercise that freedom. Now, it's simple, really what this is is simply a principle of thoughtfulness. Um, and it's, to be honest with you, I don't, think this is, I don't think this is an easy one for us. We are Americans. We value freedom. We value individualism. I have my rights. Paul doesn't ever in this passage deny that we have freedom. This is a very freedom-affirming passage. But he does say, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be thoughtful about how we use it. If you're planning a guy's weekend and one of the guys is going to go from church with you on this weekend is going through a 12-step program to deal with his gambling addiction, I don't care if the best hotel, hotel deal you got was in Las Vegas. That's not probably a good place to go. Just using your freedom to help build help draw people closer to Jesus. Um, and connected with this thoughtfulness, with this uh, use of freedom is this. The final thing is to work to care for others, not yourself. To work to care for others, not yourself. Chapter 15, verse 2. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves... How can I help? How can I help? And this is really at the center of what it means to follow Jesus. 
being a disciple. It's thinking about the good of the other person. And then a com- you can imagine, a community really takes off. A community really thrives when this is a core ethic of that community. When it's part of the DNA, people thinking all around you, how can I help? How can I minister to this sister, to this brother? How can I build this person up? How can I use my freedom? How can I filter my attitudes, my behaviors, my opinions, so that this other person is shaped into the image of Jesus? And then verses uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 15 from the New Living Translation, Paul says that we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. Okay, just kind of this whole strong, weak thing, this really worked there. What they understood this to mean, the strong were the ones who understood all of the freedoms they had in Jesus Christ. The weaker brothers um, had a much narrower view, like this is the only thing I can do as a Christian. Okay, so that's just, and it's not saying right or wrong, it's just that's the, that's the language he used. The stronger brothers saw more freedom, the weaker ones saw lots of no-nos in, in their faith. And so he says, we who are strong, we who have this broader idea and understanding of our true freedom in Christ, we've got to be considerate, verse 1, of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord once again, not necessarily exercise all of that freedom that we understand that we have. So here's the thing. If you want to cooperate with the Spirit of God in creating an oasis of fellowship in a culture, I mean, turn on the TV, a culture of disharmony, of hatred, of division, if you want to create this oasis of fellowship, then instead of trying to legislate for everybody else what they should do, Paul says, first, use caution with how you define sin. Follow your conscience on these issues Channel your freedom with love and care for others, not yourself. And if we do that, we will experience the unity that comes from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been focusing on our part, and that's good because we certainly have important work to do as Christ followers, but Let's just close. Let's make sure that we close by coming back to home base here, by coming back to what's most important, and that is this greater than that holds us together. It's not our methodology. Um, The secret of our unity is our Messiah. It is Jesus Christ who is greater than our differences. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is the mortar that holds these bricks together. It is the tie that binds. Yes, there are people here in this room, here at this church, with whom you will disagree. I guarantee it. (laughs) There are people that you will have differences with here at Preston Crest. But 
if I cast my lot with Jesus, then I cast my lot with the body of Christ, his church. Because of the cross, we don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. There is one holding us together who is greater than the personalities and the preferences that tend to pull us apart. And may the Lord continue to bring us together for His glory, united by His mission, united by His love, as we try to impact this city for His glory. Maybe this morning you need prayers. Prayers over a tense situation, prayers over a conflict, prayers over something else that's keeping you awake at night, that's bothering you, that's troubling your heart. And we carry those together as a family before the throne of God. And I would just invite you in our closing time here as we sing to find someone around you, a spouse or a loved one or a small group, or come down and pray with me. And let's just pray over whatever that is that's on your heart. Or maybe this morning you need to cross that line of faith and accept what God has done for you the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the alpha, the omega, the one who holds the keys of hell and heaven in his hands. Are you willing to give your life today to him to accept what he did for you? And if you are, you can be baptized into Christ this morning. Let's be standing as we respond together.